Welcome, Perfect Organism, to the 50th episode of Podcast Maximus, a Transformers comics fan podcast produced by Red Button Audio. Our bodies are small and brittle, and if you'd like to support them with money, you can at ko-fi.com slash redbuttonaudio. Otherwise, or additionally, you can encourage us with terse praise on Facebook or on Twitter, at Podcast Maximus. On with the show, which is an interview episode. Hello and welcome to Podcast Maximus, a Transformers comics fan podcast. I'm your host, Tom McNally, and with me is Stuart Webb. Hello, yes, I, I'm here for a very special episode on one of those American sitcoms where we learn about drugs. Yes, yes, I want to learn about drugs, and to do that, we have a, with us uh, none other than Tom B. Long, a mostly retired comics letterer who is a very, very dear person to our hearts. Tom has worked on a staggering number of comics, including the IDW Transformers comics, right from Infiltration Number Zero to Unicron and beyond. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for zooming in from San Diego. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, and specifically, Ramona, right? You, yes. Information I've only just learned, so it's information I'm best at. Well, we, we're, we're going to find out exactly where he is, listeners, for the end of the show, so you can send your your mail to him. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Surprise feature, but let's go with it. So, welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, we're going to be a sort of general chat about your career, and we're going to look specifically at the lettering work you did on on the last issue of Lost Light, because we we've got to pick one, just okay. one to to focus around. If you're going to pick one with a lot of letters, a James Robert script is the one to go for. <laughs> yeah. it, it's the one that proves your metal for sure. <laughs> Um, so you know, right from right from the front cover, there's you. Did do you do the the masthead design and the title design, or is that is that another department? Yes. Um, so when you're working on staff at IDW, you're you're lettering the books and you're doing the graphic design. So you do have to to do the the cover layouts, build the masthead, you know, update all the names, build the IFC, all that good stuff. Wow. So this is you. This this lovely this lovely logo. All the desktop publishing crap. Yep, yeah, wow. I built that way back when. And and so you say you were you worked as staff. Um, yeah. That's very different. For, you know, we, we we haven't talked to that many creators here, but they are kind of all dotted around the world. They're not there in the office. Um, yes, mm-hmm. and which is a very rare position comparatively in the comics industry. Well, yeah, so the segmented nature of comics, you have your your different specialized jobs like writer, artist, inker, colorist, letterer, but somebody has to put all those pieces together, so it's just easier to have somebody in-house on staff to pull all the elements together and, and prepare it for print and then also for review by the editor so they can, you know, make sure it's good to go before heading off. It's just more efficient to have somebody there rather than, you know, they do, some publishers do vend out their graphic design and desktop publishing. If you want it done quickly, which if you're running late, it's best to have somebody just on site who can make the last minute tweaks to get it off. Because you know, the last thing you want, you've probably seen caught many times, there's typos, there's pages out of order. There's just all kinds of things that can go wrong when you're putting elements from you know five to six to eight different people together last minute. Were you on staff the entire time you were doing Transformers, or was that did you start as a freelancer and then get it off face to the potty plant? Yeah. Uh, let's see. When IDW first got the license, I was on staff. I think I was only part time though. I think I was only working two out of three days a week there, 
And then um, they lost their other graphic designer and I came on full-time for a while. I think it was back in 2006, maybe, 2007. I was only there for a couple of years full-time and then I went back to freelance until I returned in, I think it was 2012 full-time. And then I just left in, what was it, 2019? Just before the Tar World went wrong, clearly you should, you should have stayed at IDW. That was a mistake. You're keeping it all together. Mm. Trying. <laughs> is 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 letterer maybe? Um, and you know, feels it feels like you do far more than than lettering than putting the letters down. It feels like you're much more of a of a you're you are production. Yes, production was our title, production artist. If if you're lucky enough to get one of the few of my business cards I handed out, it, it said senior production artist. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that sounds much more fitting. But lettering is my like my favorite thing, so that's what I, I tried to focus on. Okay. That's what I'm known for now, I guess. IDW is based in San Diego. Yes, for now. <laughs> Who knows? Oh. I've heard rumors. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> a lot, lot of lot of things changing around right now, aren't yeah. there? Mm -hmm. um, and did you you were working on you were working for other comics companies before you were with uh, IDW, correct? Correct. Yeah, I was on staff at, at Wildstorm Production for, I want to say, six or seven years versus part-time, then full-time. <clears throat> That's where I learned all my desktop publishing and, and lettering work, coloring, all that good stuff there. Then I quit there to go freelance, I think, in 2003 before, as IDW was just taking off. And then they needed help as they were expanding, and that's when they offered me a on-staff job. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. So, uh, did the company change much over the uh, years you were there? Because I, I know originally uh, with Transformers, it's uh, Chris Wilde very much more hands-on as a direct editor, and then other people came in oversee the books. So did, did the company grow around you? Yeah, it, it went from, you know, it, initially IDW Publishing was, was four partners and about three staff, maybe four staff. And then, you know, that's when I first joined on staff. And then, you know, I left. And while I was gone, it, it it grew tremendously. You know, they they moved buildings a couple times, they expanded offices, they got, you know, up to forty employees. When I was on staff last there, it was about over almost sixty or so. You know, it's dwindled since then, but yeah, it just kept growing, you know. No in no small part to, you know, the success of their their Hasbro line and all the Transformers books they put out. So you you guys uh I guess uh helped keep them growing. <laughs> You got to keep buying those variants. No, it's funny. When I started there in 2006, I think I said it was, it was, uh, I actually had to bring my own desk with me to set up my the computer they gave me to work on. Ah. And then when I returned in 2012, they had me set up on a folding table. And again, I had to bring my own desk from home. <laughs> Did you get the desk back though? That's, that's the important question. I did. I did. I brought my, well, no, the first desk I left there, I think, uh, and that went to, um, gosh, I think one of the editors is still using it right now. The first desk I brought, cause I didn't want to bring it home. And then the second desk I did bring home, it's in my garage. Oh, what? They kept your desk. I was fine with it. <laughs> so it's tax deductible. So, uh, but back when you first started on Transformers. Yeah. Uh, and you came into letter your first issue. Uh, I believe you were working with another letterer on issue zero. Uh, what's it like when you're, there's two of you doing the lettering? Do you have to coordinate and work together to, to make it look seamless or is, is there not enough time to do that and you have to sort of hope it all? 
you know, when you're when you're splitting up a lettering a book, you really you're not even looking at what the other person is doing because it's if you're having to split a book to letter it, it's because it's already late and you got to rush it through. So that's yeah, unfortunately you don't do much. But sometimes you if if you're lucky, like sometimes Robbie would would letter the first few pages and then hand it off, and then I would try and follow his style to keep a consistent look. But in general, yeah, you're not doing too much coordination with other letterers on a book. Same with colors. A lot of times they'll split up pages to get a book out. And um, if they're lucky, they'll have one colorist who will go through an art direct to get everything correct. But in general, it's just whatever's there is there. So if you see things that look really different, that's why. <laughs> Can you tell when when someone else is lettering yeah now that, as i've grown uh, more experienced yeah i can tell almost instantly like who uh, at least from the from the guys that i worked with locally at, at idea i can tell who lettered it and um i can tell when somebody puts their name on something but somebody else probably did it because ah. you just you just look for it it's, it's little subtleties like how they shape their balloons what how they design their tails how they do their connectors it's, it's all these little things that add up to kind of give a little footprint and Sometimes, though, I look at things and say, is that me? Because, you know, it's so old that I don't remember that, oh, yeah, that's the way I used to do things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I look at photos of myself and <laughs> like that sometimes. Yep. Uh, what do you call these interior front cover credits pages? Oh, uh, inside front covers. We, okay. The acronym is IFC, yeah. Okay. In terms of, like, choice of the background and the positioning of where the authentic Transformers product logo goes. I, are there a lot of notes on that? Like, not at all. It's <laughs> free for all. It's just, Hey, just make sure it includes all this data and you're good to go. And, oh. you know, there is a little back and forth depending on how engaged an editor is on wanting the design, you know, you will get feedback. Oh, like, I don't like this layout. Try again. Or, Oh, we want to, we want to do something different for this because it's a new story arc. You know, that's, that's usually the extent of it. There's not too much heavy art direction going on. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So that all the, the kind of the color choices and the, that's all you. Ah. Yeah. So when there are uh, parts of that, which are like part of the story, uh, more than meets the eye had the swerve recaps. Yes. Um, that is you pulling an awful lot of time <laughs> on something that's not officially a page of comic, right? Like the freelancers don't yeah. get paid for this page. Yeah, they wouldn't be because it's it's just pulling art from previous issues or something and then slapping in the design. So that's just part of my hourly rate. So they got that on the cheap. Okay, and yeah, they they did that trick a lot in uh, in Lost Light and More Than Meets the Eye, right? There's always there's always some way of inflating the page count, uh, yeah, putting it on your shoulders. Add some fluff, yeah, pat it out. <laughs> and then for something like that, where there's essentially a block of text that, like, here you go, Tom, make this interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I imagine that sort of like enjambment and um, paragraphing isn't really in the script, right? Um, some of it is, but a lot of times it, it as, as you grow as a letterer, one of the things you learn to do is like um, break up balloons and or text blocks so that they, they fit a little more aesthetically pleasing to the eye. Mm. And yeah, just, you know, to make it just so that you're not just reading one big word balloon in the middle of the page, because yeah, the, the the writer doesn't necessarily know how something like that should flow, and it's up to you to just make it look pretty. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to, I, I guess this is this is sort of the same thing. When it comes to like the title design of the thing, mm -hmm. here we have. Um, so in Lost Light Twenty Five, we've got the how to say goodbye and mean it part two. Yes. 
-hmm. And that's there alongside a kind of element that is essentially putting a, a huge amount of plot importance onto a kind of a lettering reveal. Mm -hmm. Is there much in the way of direction on that? The importance of the arrangement of these elements is incredibly important for how the story plays yeah. out and, and the punch at the end. Yeah, the, uh, the pretty much the default answer whenever is, is there any direction, the answer is always going to be no. <laughs> hey, geez. Because the editors don't have time to really oversee anything, and there aren't art, there isn't an art director on staff. Usually, I mean, there's somebody who has that title, but they've got their own work to do, so they're not really looking at that. So yeah, all that, all those um, subtitles and you know chapter titles, that's all whoever led the book. In this case, it was me. But yeah, that's just stuff we come up on with our own. Like, um, and you know, the creative initiative, you have to come up with that too. So if you look at the that Bumblebee miniseries, I think it's from the movie prequel where it was the 007 stuff. Mm -hmm. So I went through and I just pulled up the old 007 movie posters and tried to make all those subtitles match in the design to how the, the titles of those movies were. So just wow. you know, looking for creative you know, influence that way. Does it sound like you were getting, you would get much direction on the lettering from the scripts then? Is it pretty much entirely up to you? Every now and then, this was something that was really great working on um, James Roberts' scripts, is every now and then he put little notes in for me like, hey, I, I really want this this panel to emote and this this word this word balloon to evoke some emotion so then i would play with it so if i added hearts to like you know or musical symbols stuff like that sometimes it was because there was a note from the writer saying hey this is this is what i'm going for in this scene can you make it make the lettering do something to carry this emotion forward so those those things are cool like every now and then i would get those and every now and then I would also kick back, like, hey, this is what I came up with. What do you think? You know, run it by James. And, and, and you know, usually I use Twitter. I just send him a direct message. Hey, what do you think, man? Does this look good? And he'd send back, oh, I'll make it look more like this. Or no, this is a spot on. And yeah, that was cool, because that way at least I knew I was getting it right for someone. The, the view of sort of things always fascinating me is uh, the Transformers speech bubbles and mm -hmm. uh, their evolution over the years. Obviously, they started off with uh, the colored borders around them and then. Uh, they went through various different iterations. I think it sort of generally settled on the sort of marvelesque square-ish bubbles mm -hmm. at one point and uh, then more organically shaped ones. I mean, is that something that came to you from somebody higher up? Or scripts, uh, like the script with, I should say, speech bubbles need to be distinct, or was that just entirely you again that it changed according to what you fancy doing for the scripts? As I recall, when we first, when they first got the Hasbro license and doing Transformers, the idea was to try and make it look mechanical. So that's why you saw rectangles, and to kind of like pay homage to the to the Marvel comics. So that's why they were rectangles and everything. But as time went on, you know, the, that doing that digitally was a little bit labor intensive, especially when you have the layered with the um, stuff behind it. So that kind of slowed down production. So that. It was probably more an efficiency thing to move to migrate to more of the just organic regular word speech balloons. Right. I but, suppose a, a, a rectangle is always going to take up more space than an ellipsis. Exactly. Yeah. But also, I think uh, it was it, it fit the storytelling better as time went on because these these characters they stopped being you know just big metal men and became actual fleshed out you know um, whole characters that were a little more organic in their personalities and so it just fit the tone of the stories better. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, a whole a whole issue like this where everybody is just talking in rectangles is like, yeah, kind of. But it's belaboring the point. We've, we've exactly gotten, we've gotten through that. There's one thing I want to ask about. You mentioned word bubble shape, and of course that is at some point that is a drawing you have made. 
Yeah. Um, what are your rules? Uh, well, there's there's different schools of thought on how to make your wear balloons. And, and the general one that's agreed on is that wear balloons are start with an oval, and then you sort of inflate it so that it, it contains a because text is still going to come out square or, or with hard corners. So you want it to, to flesh out so you, you have an even space around the text. So that's why most standard balloons are these inflated ovals. They're not quite cir perfect circles and they're not quite perfect ovals. But um, I don't know, you probably notice as I grow, I do occasionally throw in um, more geometric shapes if I want it. Because like I will use perfect circles or perfect ovals if there's something I want to um, call attention to, like a character that one word, one syllable answer like no, I usually use a perfect circle because it kind of like, it, it acts like a period. It creates a visual aesthetic that, hey, this is this is terminating this lane of thought and this person is just saying no or yes, you know, just there there's a finality to that perfect circle period. So that's the that's the kind of way I do it. Or sometimes I'll use we'll use like a rectangle shape if even if something's going on, if if the person is being very like clinical and, and specific and there's an emotion behind the story that says this person is just like wrote reading something, you know, verbatim because they don't have any emotional connection to this statement. You know, silly stuff like that, which is probably way more detailed than anybody cares to hear, but well, that's my thought process. When you're looking for it, you can really see it there. Um, yeah. the, there's a panel in Lost Light 25 with Rodimus talking to Prowl, and Prowl talks in rectangles, mm -hmm. uh, whereas Rodimus talks in he talks in in ovals, and that is such right. a such an immediate way of such an immediate form of characterization. Exactly. Yeah, you're creating like a visual distinction in between the tones being presented, you know, to the reader. At least that's my thought process. Hmm. I could be full of it. I don't know. <laughs> if you're doing this all day, sitting at the desk, like you, you're gonna, you're gonna form a philosophy. You spend a lot of time alone with no one to talk to, and you get stuck in your head. So you come up with things to be thinking about. Some of the writers I know, probably most famously James, because I've read some of those scripts. You know, they would write full, full scripts. And I know John Barber uh, experimented at times in doing it Marvel style. Mm -hmm. uh, did that make a difference to your process, whichever way uh, that worked? Or not really, because the end product is kind of going to be the same. Like the, the style of writing in the script isn't isn't going to. And I confess, a lot of times I don't read the uh, the panel descriptions. I'm just strictly reading the. The, um, just the, the the balloon text. That's it. Just going from and because a lot of times the the scripts descriptions of what's going on they're not going to match the art because the artist is then inputting their you know interpretation of the story into the layout and the art. So it's not it, many times it doesn't even match. So you kind of have to try and get their speech balloons to match what the artist came up with. So you're kind of an intermediary between the two creators trying to come up with, you know, something to, to glue it together, if that makes sense. Right, yeah, so if there's an element, a background element in there that's particularly striking, mm -hmm. you, you need to find the negative space where you, exactly. can, where you can fill it up with that. Yeah, you don't want to step on the art, but you still want to keep the, uh, the emotional impact of whatever the, the writer came up with in the scene. Hmm. Do you have any license to remove words or add words? Uh, yeah, but you really want to do that sparingly mm. because a, a lot of times, you know, um, what, I, what I'll do if, if a lot of times you'll get, if an artist drew a, a panel just way too small mm. and, the art and, the, and the writer has, you know, 
three paragraphs that they wanted to fit in there. It's just not going to work. So when it gets really that extreme, I'll kick it back to the editor or the writer themselves and say, hey, look, this is what, what we're working with. It's, it's not going to play because you're not going to see anything except the word balloons here. So what do you want you guys want to do? And let them do the revisions. Because that way you're not, you know, stepping on toes and, you know, making anyone feel, you know, disrespected that you, you mess with their creation. But every now and then I will change a word or two if it just doesn't fit. And mm. it's just like, if it says you are, I'll convert that to your, because yeah. it's, and many times I'll have editors who will do it themselves. They'll, they'll, when they're going through it and proofreading, they'll say, this doesn't work. Let's just change this. And then I'll get the text edits from them. So okay. it's. But it all, at the end, it all goes back to the creators. The writer and the artist do get final proofs of everything put together. So if they feel strongly that something should have been left alone, they'll they'll hit us back and say, "Hey, can you change this back?" And that's fine. You know, it's a collaborative process. Yeah. What What are the time margins on that? When When something's about to go to print and you, someone is unhappy. Ah, uh, that's when we use the old moniker. Uh, we'll fix it for you on the trade. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> There's a tradition in, in um, which I remember reading about in British comics, particularly in 2000 AD, where mm -hmm. the letterer was kind of the final, final editor and mm -hmm. would make dialogue choices and even character choices like back in the days of, of handwritten. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems, has the four, and I guess when it's ink on page, when it's mm -hmm. written on the thing, there's no changing it. You can't. Yeah. You can't post it back to the artist. I guess has the were you have you ever handwritten um, a comic for one? Yeah. And has the process changed a lot since it's become more integrated? Yeah, no. Uh, I would say from that time, letters have lost a lot of respect because no, they don't have any of that power now. Um, I've all, I've only ever done digital. Actually, I've never done hand lettering. I've, I've hand lettered, you know, just some rough logos just for fun to see what they look like, but. In general, no, and this is the this is the problem of technology. As as it's gotten faster to make changes and easier to do, you know, the the value of that labor has reduced greatly to the point that you know they'll pretty much they'll, somebody will give you two hour crash course here. This is what you do: copy paste, put this here, and go, and that's it. And then you're expected to be a letterer. I mean, I see it a lot because there. If you look at um, people just who put themselves out there as letters, and this is no disrespect to people learning, they don't, nobody told them the rules. I mean, there's just like every other job and skill set, there's rules, like mm. how you position your tails, you know, how you break down an, um, a paragraph so that it fits cleanly inside the letter, how you connect balloons, you know, how you layer them, all that stuff. There's just the basics that you don't get taught. You just get taught how to use Adobe Illustrator to do lettering, and then you're off and running, and then you see bad lettering and bad lettering ruins comics more than anything. People you know, don't you, know that it's ruined. I, I, I see that sometimes in reviews yeah. and things like they, they blame the line work, they blame the writing, but yeah, when stuff is awkward, it makes you yeah. feel awkward. Yeah. Like there may be a beautiful drawing, but if you put a whole bunch of, of balloons over the middle of it that they can't see the drawing, then they're going to say, this is, this comic sucks. Mm. Simple as that. I imagine when you're in the office, they have, they have uh, an Adobe subscription. You're not using your own yes. software. Right. The, the lettering banks, the f uh, I always, it, do we say fonts? Do we say typefaces? Fonts, yeah. Fonts, okay. You must over the years have curated an amazing collection of fonts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I bought the uh, the uh, Comicraft, you know, the gold pack CD way back when, and, and I, you know, every time they have their sale on New Year's Eve, I buy a couple more just for fun. And 
Yeah, and Blambot has some great ones. So yeah, using the right font too, because I mean, the right font, you know, and it's various typefaces can really, you know, add to the story because you're, you're not going to use one, one is something that's too sci-fi in a story that's, you know, medieval, you know, that's, mm. you want to pick the right, right tone and look and aesthetic. I want to talk a bit about flow mm -hmm. because the, you know, in a, in a especially dialogue heavy book, like Lost Light, More Meets the Eye, it's kind of one of the most important things. So much of the tone is in the, not just in the characterization of what people are saying, but in, in how they're saying it. I, I don't know, this looks so incredibly hard to do. <laughs> I mean, you've got uh, a sequence in um, Lost Light where you have someone giving a lot of information, another character responding to that while acknowledging another character, all while their faces are conveying a lot of information. Um, but the space between them is quite important too. Like, how yeah. do you how, how do you break that down? Uh, painfully, <laughs> it's it's tricky. I mean that that's the part that where that's all experience because you you need to um, just do it a lot, just as with any other skill. It's just building on on past experience because with so many balloons and in, in, in conversation, it's basically you're having talking heads coming into play layering things is important and positioning them important so that your eye still flows through the panel correctly you know it's it's just like reading a book you know or, or american book i should say left to right top down so you're trying to imagine like a an individual line that travels right through the center of every balloon and every panel that never crosses over itself that never um you know backtracks so that you're not reading you know something and then, oh, wait, I read this out of order. This doesn't make any sense. And it's tricky to do, especially if somebody decides to draw their panels in a circle around the, the page. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's just what I was going to ask, actually. Is that something where the, um, the artist and the writer need to be aware of when they're, they're doing the script, so, uh, thinking ahead of how it's going to, the speech bubbles will work in these panels? They, they have to help you out a bit there as well. Yeah, that's when you, you can tell a, a very experienced comic artist from one who's kind of new to it is that the more experienced will actually not only read the, you know, the panel descriptions, they'll read the dialogue and they'll see, okay, there's a lot of text going on in this panel. I need to make it, you know, I need to give it some, some negative space for this stuff to fit. Like Livio is really good at that. He, when he, he lays out his panels, he, he kind of gives um, me a little bit extra space to play with where I can, you know, drop stuff in. Um, Jack Lawrence in... in this same thing he knew that like okay there's got to be a lot of text here i'm going to give it a nice big background you know sky scene to put balloons in just something that you know helps without the letter so yeah the more same with anything else the more experienced the, your penciler the better time you're going to have getting stuff to fit mm. i suppose when when there is that kind of smash where you've got fill-in artists and things mm -hmm. where no, people aren't all on the same page I imagine that's when things really slip Yes. Yeah. When there's just sometimes an artist will go like, "This is this is interesting." Is the the original comic art has exploded in, in value? You know, pricing the online auction for this stuff. I know. I started to notice like artists drawing really detailed backgrounds and just filling the space with you know beautiful artwork, but there was nowhere to put balloons. And it's because they weren't thinking of the storytelling; they were thinking of the resale value on the open market. Yeah, <laughs> I, I owned a couple of Alex Mill pages. Yeah. And uh, yes, they definitely uh, they could have been cheaper and easier work for you. It would have been a win-win for both of us. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that that that's a great point. Like the page rate is is X, but the 
if you're on a mm-hmm. comic that, that that gets a fan base that gets some cachet on it then yeah the extra hours making your life more difficult are probably worth it <laughs> yeah. a couple of years down the line yeah, and, and you don't get to resell your word balloons afterwards. <laughs> no, it's, it's all that's, that's a shame, but nobody's got one of those on the wall. That's all right. It's still fine. I still get comps, so I'm happy. <laughs> okay, that, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, and so there are times when, I don't know, cramped lettering uh, is sort of a story element. There's a, a, um, a, a memorable bit or... or infamously memorable bit in Lost Light 19, uh, the uh-huh. EJ Sue issue, where there is uh, an info dump of, uh-huh. of, te- of people giving summaries of issues that never happened. Uh-huh. And that's where it seems like you've got to sort of break the rules a bit, where actually having paragraphs is part of the joke. Yes, I think that was um, actually in the script, if I remember correctly. That was something that they that you know James wanted. So yeah, we just that was that was kind of fun to do. Any of those things that break the rules that are deliberately meant to be both a visual gag and you know a storytelling element. Yeah, you just kind of throw that stuff out there. Because between the the swerve um, pages, where you've got all that space to play with, and you you lay things out very beautifully to make it sound mm-hmm. like a rhythm of speech. Yeah, it's funny. It's almost like a, a fourth wall break on TV when you know that it's like this is a gag, this is a joke. We know it's a joke, and we know, we want you to be in on it too. And like, here, check it out. Yeah, it's kind of that element. But around that time, you're doing Unicron, which was supposed to be Fortnite originally. Lost Lights, Optimus Prime, a huge amount of very detailed, text-heavy books. You're, you're like that. You were like the Ham Zimmer of lettering. <laughs> at that point. So that was that a particularly tough time working on so much simultaneously? And probably other stuff I've not mentioned as well. That was just sort of a quick glance. No, actually I, I dig it. It's it's one of those things like you just you once you start you don't stop. And yeah, I, I enjoyed the whole process and it, it was never too much for me. Like it just I just kept going. How long does it take you to get into the zone? Oh not long at all. I just I've been doing it so long I can just pick right up and get into it. And it just it it's no there's no delay for me. The nice thing about working on staff is that, um, like, the most tedious part of lettering is the copy paste, just laying out a page. And it was cool because on staff there was a, a production member, um, Amori, whose his whole gig was just copying, and pasting, and building lettering pages for us. So that I just got right into layouts and, and balloon design without having to do all the tedious parts. So man, he's he's worked. He's probably worked on more transformer pages than I have, but he's not credited because it's it's a production task as opposed to a lettering task. But it, he's probably like the most important guy on staff in the production department because he saves so much time. He's so fast at it. You know, with like using like GI Joe, which has their specific balloons for for characters talking off screen. You know, he's got templates for that so he can drop it in with, without even thinking about it half the time he probably has them all memorized now he knows exactly what to do so that's where you that that that's the drag that's the only part that's a drag is the is the, is the uh, production drop the non-creative side of it so luckily we had a guy who was totally willing to do that for us <laughs> he's lettered a few things along the way you know just you know as, as he learned but he was just happy to do his gig copy paste for us build the pages wow Ah, yeah. Interesting. Were, were there any other sort of unsung heroes behind the scenes uh, working with you in the offices that you think never got enough uh, credit as well? 
gosh, no, I think he's it. Cause he was the man, you know, he worked cause it was one guy, there were five letters and he was building all our pages for us all day long. So that it was impressive. So even putting, putting the blocks of text, taking them out the, the text file and putting them kind of on the sort of art where uh, roughly where they should be. Exactly. Wow. And then from there, you know, that's when I, when we would step in and we make the changes. So he'll, he'll put in just the, the basic generic balloons associated with the book, but then that's when I would do the creative side of like, you know, okay, I'm going to make this a perfect circle. I'm going to make this a rectangle or I need to shape this slightly different to fit the text, that kind of thing. Kind of like a, like a tech when you're setting up a science experiment, like all the, all the, all the test tubes, all the pipettes are out there and all the right, um, exactly. uh, all dialed up correctly. He's like um, our stew chef, you know, he's got the, the onions chopped, ready to go. Oh man. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about, about sound effects. Okay. Um, so is that process, uh, are they, I guess they're probably intermittently scripted, right? Yes, they're in there usually, and uh, the writers try to put in what they think it would sound well for it. But this is the one time where I'm very proactive in changing them. Because a lot of writers, you know, they, they're trying to th think of like, okay, this is going to be a big sound, so they'll make it say crack, and they'll put 12 Ks, you know, and 13 Rs, and it's like, well, a crack is just one loud, heavy sound, so you just want a big word balloon with K-R-A-K or C-R-A-C-K, whatever, to fill the space. It doesn't need a whole bunch of consonants in the letters. You keep it simple, and the reader, the reader will get it. Make it visually attractive. You don't, you don't need a bunch of extra characters in there. See. We, we, we've got a, a, um, an, a, an example here in Lost Light 25 of Chrome Dome inserting rewind uh, in the form of a memory stick into the back of his neck. It's like quite a strange, intimate moment. And yeah, it is this simple click. Yep. Which is, it's like, it's like the kind of thing you can hear from across the room and like an important thing to note, but, you know, might get lost in, in, in a bustle. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes across right away. And then, um, do you make the coloring choice on that, or does that come in yeah. later? With okay, no. you also do the you so you you design the sound effect, you do the coloring, you do the placement, and in my case, I will actually you know create the sound effect, come up with the uh, the um, what it should sound like. Because sometimes they'll it, it won't make sense. Some I've many a time I've read a script and then it's supposed to be a car crashing and it'll be a soft sound like a splat or something it's a car crash it's it's not a oozy liquid sound it needs to be something hard and metallic so yeah you, you need to make those calls to you know keep it keep the reader engaged in tone i guess i'd say i might think ac accents must be and dialects must be a huge impediment there as well you know what sound what what what, what, a, what a french person thinks is is a certain vowel sound would be very different from someone on the west yeah. coast that's a good point. I never considered that, you know, a foreign um, language speaker, you know, reading an English sound effect and not getting, you know, the tone of it because I only speak English. So that's... Yeah, well, we've got to, we've got to situate it somewhere. Yeah. Interesting. I think, does the legacy of the old Batman TV show, you think you know, that's... Of course, whenever they write about comics, they still use the splat, pow, pow stuff. So do you think when they're writing for sound effects for a comic, they're still thinking about a West? Yes. That's basically what I would do, which would make what they're letting write comics. <laughs> yeah, that that's going to have a pop culture legacy beyond our time because that's that's exactly what people think when they think sound effect. Those those basics, just pow and Chris Blatt and you know zoom. 
just that's that. So I've tried to come up with some interesting ones along the way, you know, just to do something different. And, you know, I followed kind of what Comicraft did, because if you look at their sound effects, they're really impressive. And they, they've come up with like Cthulhu, you know, simple stuff, but it, it adds an element of, you know, storytelling with, you know, more connection to what, the way we hear things. Mm. Yeah, it's a whole vocabulary running alongside things. Um, mm -hmm. it, uh, there's a moment in Lost Light 25 when Swerve goes, boo! And um, it br it's not in the usual, f I mean, it's close enough that it scans, but that's n not the same font. Is, is, oh, yeah. is that hand done or is that a different font just organized? Particularly? Those are, uh, that's just different font. And I do use different fonts to, um, as accents for if, if something, you know, more impact, if, yeah, like, you know, somebody saying boo, that would be a heavier sound and it needed to be called out that it's not a, a spoken word. So yeah, if somebody, um, what do they call those? Um, exclamations. Hmm. So anything that's, you know, not that, that needs to, that is more about the emotional impact of storytelling and not so much about what is being said, I will usually use, change out the font, try something different just to give it, you know, visual cues. I, you, you talked about G.I. Joe and how every character has their own sort of typeset and style. Mm -hmm. uh, Transformers, in my mind, kind of mercifully keeps away from that. But yeah. there are there are moments towards the end where that gets a bit more experimental. There's the magnificence and... and... Uh, I don't remember what they look like, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do remember trying to give the magnificence its own look and, and feel. Yeah, I do remember doing that, but I don't remember what they look like. Okay. After, after thousands of pages, they all blur. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, I mean, it wasn't just Transformers you were working on as well. You were doing pretty much every title in IDW at the time, weren't you? Well, there were five of us at the time, so we all had our different titles. But yeah, I was working on everything from My Little Pony and Littlest Pet Shop to G.I. Joe and, gosh, what were the other titles? You tell me. You probably have the wiki pulled up. <laughs> I can't remember them all because it, it's just one page after another, and you're trying to crank them out and get them to the printer on time. So, <laughs> And then you're, you're a lot of times you're working um, – like a relay system where I'll have five pages of Optimus Prime in two pages of Lost Light, you know, three pages of GI Joe, and I'm getting those all done on one day. I'm not, you're not working start to finish. Mm. So you're just working out a few pages at a time and sending them off and just trying to get approvals and edits while still juggling all those books. Oh, geez, I, yeah. I hadn't appreciated that. Yeah. It all feels so uh, vertical looking back at it here but yeah I, I, I didn't appreciate that in one day you've got so many titles coming in sometimes you're working off color like final pages which is great because then you can you know make the colors of your sound effects and you know exactly how it's going sometimes you're working off inks or worse pencils in which case things aren't even going to fit right when you get the final artwork in and you're going to have to adjust your lettering last minute when you're putting everything together for print so it's yeah that's why it's kind of hard to remember everything because you're just you're you're scattered all over. It's a shotgun blast of pages every day. You never know what you're gonna get. <laughs> um, and I guess you probably don't read the comics afterwards as well. I imagine you're probably quite you're kind of done with them by the time. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a fair assessment. Yeah, <laughs> I I do retain. It. I mean, I'm reading the story as I go. So, and then when you're putting together a final book, you do kind of give it a cursory once over to make sure all the pages are in the right place and everything is is fitting correctly for crops. But um, yeah, I, I usually tend not to revisit once I'm done. Yeah, yeah so that's uh, what this podcast is for. We're here to help you by reading the comics so you don't have to. <laughs> so you can just remember vicariously through us. Nice. Uh, but one thing with the Magnificent, so uh, Tom mentioned about the uh, 
makes me wonder, but the few occasions when you had to do alien languages mm -hmm. uh, throughout the series, what was the process of creating uh, alien lessons? Yeah, it's, uh, we have, there's a couple, uh, we have that ancient Cybertronian font for when they're speaking, you know, in, in language that you're not meant to understand. And then there's a couple other we picked up, as I recall, along the way that were, were basically gibberish fonts that, yeah, you just, you plug them in and you, you hope they look good. And if I remember correctly, a couple times, if you can find the font, you might be able to translate it to what the text I actually put in there, which is like, this is fake text or, you know, hey, how are you today? You know, just <laughs> if, if you can, you know, transpose it and decrypt it, there's little messages in those little gibberish fonts sometimes. <laughs> uh, certainly Voss is going to seem a much nicer person if I just go in, hey, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I am. I'm lost. <laughs> oh, gosh, this is a story from, from way back. But when I was at Wildstorm, we, we were training up new letters. And there was this one guy, nice guy. But, you know, him and this other dude, other letter, they like to, you know, trash talk each other a lot. And so he got the idea one day to um, put in some fleeting expletives, calling this other letter a, you know, various things and telling him where he can go. And he thought, I'm going to put it in three-point text in this whisper balloon in Gen 13, not realizing that just because you can't see three-point text on screen doesn't mean <laughs> it's not going to print perfectly legible. So if you go out there and find that one issue, you're gonna you're gonna see some some f bombs and some, <laughs> some rather raunchy. And it, I feel bad because it did cost him his job. Like you know, they, they, he he was out of there. So it was a shame. But yeah, every now and then your letters do slip some things in that maybe they shouldn't. <laughs> so it was a similar thing. Uh, Doctor Who magazine a couple of years ago. Uh, well, not, not in a comic, but in uh, a column, someone who's doing their last column puts sort of first set of every paragraph spelt out the BBC are an explosive. And uh, that nearly got the whole magazine cancelled. Oh, damn. <laughs> wow. Oh, Doctor Who, I do miss lettering Doctor Who. I had a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of that show. So that was, that was my Prisoners of Time run. That's when, when everyone asks me what I'm most proud of, it's Transformers work. And uh, that Doctor Who Prisoners of Time miniseries. Yeah, you, you've knocked one of my questions out already. Yes. So, other than being a, a sort of inbuilt fan of of Doctor Who, what was it about Prisoners of Time that made it so rewarding? Because the, the way they broke it up, you know, each issue was a separate Doctor, you know, separate time story arc, you know, separate season. Basically, I was able to kind of play with, you know, having each issue have its own sort of, you know, uh, lettering aesthetic, like each each through. Like it was basically consistent throughout the series but you know the way i handled sound effects or how i handled you know just the, the flow of it was just a little bit different in each one to kind of fit the the tone of whatever doctor i was doing since you know each doctor has its own you know persona so uh, that was the uh their 50th anniversary so yes. wasn't it yeah mm -hmm. uh... yep that was the one and then if and for the uh the collected the hardcover the artwork um the dave sim artwork his original didn't meet the the likeness requirements from BBC, so I got to do a lot of art correction in that. I got to you know stretch my artistic endeavor to try and get the character art to look a little bit more like the uh, the actors. So that was a lot of fun too. Got to step out of my rather you know technical role there. Okay, so that was uh, I think remember Chris Reckleson again with Doctor Who magazine. I don't know what it was like with RW, but he was very you're making me too handsome. You've got to make me uglier. I don't look like that. <laughs> But, uh, but I guess that's not a problem with Transformers, though. Optimus Prime 
isn't going to write in and say, I, I refuse to sign off on this likeness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like Jack Lawrence's problem there to make those characters look right. And it happens a lot, unfortunately, when, um, well, not unfortunately, it's just the nature of the beast. You know, they'll, they'll send it into Hasbro, the licensor, for approval, and it'll come back, oh, yeah, this is, you need to, you know, add these headlights aren't in the right place or these dots are incorrect, and so the artist has to go in and tweak all their art and we put in patches. But, you know, it's, it's the nature of the beast when you have these, you know, bunch of metal men doing their thing. <laughs> well, that's interesting because uh, I know Verizon is often very, Hasbro don't bother them too much. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think anybody ever really asked the artists that, though. It sounds like they, they get a bit more feedback mm -hmm. from, from Hasbro than perhaps the writers do. Yeah, the artists and the colorists, too. Like, if the color scheme on, on a character doesn't quite match, we'll get a lot of revisions for those, too. Oh, jeez. So yeah. it's like a whole conversation where, like, well, it's some, you know, they're in, they're in a dark place right now. So when there are kind of story... I guess, I guess it's, it's why it's comparatively rare why a character will change their colors for a story reason. Because mm -hmm. there were a few times uh, towards the end when uh, uh, well, the mild swear words uh, got slipped in. Uh, is that something Hasbro had any comments on, or were they, they fine with that? Uh, I don't recall them having a problem with swear words. I know that there were several times where they had to change, um, I want to say, I don't remember if it was taking out gun and replacing it with blaster, mm. or take out shoot and replace it with blast, but yeah, there were... There were some, you know, text changes that you meant to make it more G-rated. Yeah. If I remember correctly, the, uh, the toy packing comics mm -hmm. would have dialogue change. Um, I think uh, that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it um, was. That was what I'm thinking of. Because I would have yeah. to make those changes and then pr prepare the production for the packings. Yep. Yeah, it seems like you went above and beyond the Call of Duty there. I noticed the the speech panels are often resized in those. Oh yeah. Sometimes you just have to to make it fit. <laughs> it just so you, you kind of mentioned a bit about musical notation and things. Uh, there, mm -hmm. There's a beautiful moment when one of the only speech panels on a on a page on in Lost Eye 25 is, is Cyclonus belting out Huey Lewis in the news. Yep. Um, now, I, I cannot read music. That is, is that nonsense notation there? Well, those are real music notes, but yeah, it's just kind of, I... I I mean, I was in high school band, and that was 30 years ago. So I don't even, can't read music anymore. So I just I know enough to know like okay, there's a there's a note and put it in there, and it's good to go. <laughs> They'll get the idea. <laughs> I suppose that could be that could be a kind of a law, like whether the characters are resembling a real car too much, or if like if oh we don't want to take eight notes from a song owned by Viacom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, well, would you even have been able to use actual music? Uh, I think the lyrics, they're, they're the bare minimum that you can get away with. Yeah, I don't know if I were actually put in the actual, you know, measures with the, the true notes. You know, I might, might be stepping on toes there. Yeah, don't watch Huey Lewis come in for you. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's other kind of bits as well. There's the... Uh, this feels like it's, it's very much your style. I imagine this would be something that would be that would distinguish you from from others if if they came mm -hmm. in on a book. Uh, when you use red outlines for a oh yeah for, uh, for a, a, a exclamation or a shout, yeah, um, the the double balloon thing that actually um, I picked that up from uh, comic rap way back in my Wildstorm days. That was actually fairly common using it, and it's kind of. I've noticed that it's kind of fallen out of favor. I don't know if it's because new letters don't know how to use it or they just 
I don't want to say lazy, but you know, it's, it's an extra step. So if you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, but yeah, I would, I generally add them to that. You know, they're not called out in the script and it's just something I do when I, I know that something needs to be loud or set off from the rest of it. Just same with bursts or having the text go outside of the balloon and have its own outline wrapping around the shape. Yeah. It's just, you know, my, my technique for making something sound loud. Oh, this is this is incredibly specific, but I want to know your rules for when the panel, when the speech panel, go over the gutters. That's another thing that new letters don't do very much, and it's kind of fallen out of favor. And I think it's probably because they don't know to use that technique. And if you look at hand letters back in the day, it was quite common to have almost all the balloons register up against the uh, the the panel border, mm. and it's it's mainly a space saving technique so that you're not stepping on the artwork. You're letting the panel art come forward and bridging up against the corner is just an easy way of getting the balloons out of the way so that you, you're not, you can see more artwork because just having them float around too. And it, it, that's the other part too, is like a lot of balloons just sort of float over the page and they're not connected. So visually anchoring them against the panel, sort of blends the lettering into the page and it becomes one piece of art instead of just something layered together. Mm. Yeah. It, it also seems to denote like the lead speaker in a panel as well. The fact that like, yeah. th this is the person who's filling the room versus these are the people who are just kind of into, in, into putting in their two cents. Exactly. It's usually your primary voice in the panel is the first one that speaks so that you, by anchoring it up in the top uh, left, it's, it's the first thing it, it gives you, okay, this is the important person here to listen to. Yeah, exactly. Surprised somebody else picked that up. I thought that was just me being kooky. <laughs> no, it's a lovely technique. There's, there's um, a great kind of counterpoint to uh, info drop we were talking about earlier in Lost Light 19. <laughs> in Lost Light 25, you have this lovely table scene where everybody's kind of talking about again things that never happened but could have mm -hmm. that seems particularly challenging it seems like jack's laid out the 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 the, the line work well enough so there's plenty of space but you've got to try and get a bit of characterization in each <laughs> in each bubble uh and, and that that sort of sense of people talking over each other but not aggressively I guess there's got to be a decision when when one word balloon is is floating over another one, how much of the text versus how much of the balloon is obscured by each other, right? Exactly. So that's another technique I've picked up along the way that um, I learned long ago and it kind of fell out is that layering balloons over each other. And there's two schools of thought on this. If you follow mine, mine is like, well, I'll start with the, the other one. I think at Marvel, their philosophy was the first balloon you read goes in front, the second balloon goes behind that, the third goes behind that, so you're reading in order, and the, and the balloons are kind of being pushed to the back. I use the opposite. I feel it's like, if you're reading a comic balloon, it's like reading a page of a book. The one you read first turns over and the next one goes on top of it. So that's why mine layer forward. So mine, my balloons will always layer coming towards the reader at the end of the panel. And Layering them over is also, it's a space saving technique because if you've tried to imagine that panel, if you had every balloon just floating off on its own, it would, it would just be a cluster. You wouldn't really know what to read it. Linking them together, but layering actually creates a visual like stepping stone. You're just going from one balloon to the next. Cause you know, this one goes here, this one goes here, this one goes here. Mm -hmm. And then kind of staggering them a little bit is kind of like, 
okay, if this is a dominant voice, kind of move it towards the top. If this is a quieter voice, put it towards the bottom, you know, and then keep moving that way based on just, you know, what they're saying in, in each panel, you know, and give, give the ones that are, um, you know, maybe having, you know, less impact on the story, just slightly smaller balloons. If, if you need to overlap the text a little bit to show that, hey, this person is getting cut off, that, that's a really easy visual technique to kind of like say, you know, it's like you're getting shush, basically. Somebody's talking over you. And so mm -hmm. cover up more of their text versus somebody else's. So those are the thought processes that I go through anyway when I'm trying to lay one out. And this is like such a, it's such an important moment, but in Lost Light 25 where Megatron is regretting everything that happened in his life. He has four crisscrossing speech panels of mm -hmm. four short sentences. Uh -huh. That's like the conclusion of his character arc. Mm -hmm. And that is, yeah, and that's you. That's you doing that, right? That, that, that. I guess you've been in this game long enough and you do this so, so many times a day. Mm -hmm. Do you sort of know instinctively how that looks? Yeah, kinda. Yeah, it's when I when I read through it really quick on the first pass, I can tell like okay, the vision, the 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 tone I think this character is going through right now is that they're you know they're deep in thought and there's going to be pauses between each thought to like for reflection. So you want to space things out a little bit more and, and give it breathing room and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where I come from when I'm looking at it is like, I don't want to get too goofy, but I do, I do try and get in the character's head about like, okay, why are they saying this? And, and what should the reader take from it? Like, what are they going to see when they read this? Yeah. You don't want, you don't want like the speed talk, like cram all these balloons together and then just one after another, you, you want to, you know, give a thought when you're reading it, the enjoyment, the reader to, to, to ponder what was said and then move on. Hmm. So, yeah. There's an idea that, that the more space on a, in a comic panel represents how much time is, is happening in that moment. Yeah. But then there's a whole other, I mean, almost like another time dimension to it of how audio, I guess, is spaced out as well. Exactly, yeah. You're, you're, that's a good way to put it. It's, you're trying to create you know, internal audio in a person's head when they're reading their book. So that's what the, the letter is really going for. Because you know when someone reads this, they're hearing in their head and you want it to emote what the character is doing. So whether that's big balloons, big letters, small ones for whispers, just you know, spacing it out, it's all those things factored together to create the, the reading experience. Do you, do you, when, you, when you're working on this, do, you, do your lips move? <laughs> do you, do you sound out a little bit? Yeah, actually, sometimes I, this, I, I think I commented on this before, is like, so when I was working on staff, I'm sure, because we, we got our headphones on, we're, we're, you know, rocking, but I will sometimes sound out a sound effect, like, how's that going to work? Is that going to work with, you know, cocoon, or is this going to be better with, you know, I don't know. I just, and yeah, I will, you know, because you're lost in your head, you're totally unaware of anything else going on in the room. And just like when I'm working at home freelance, I'll just spout off something just to, just to hear what it might've sounded like, if that's going to sound correct, you know, in, 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 the, in the tone of the book. So when you're working with characters like this, many of whom have very famous uh, voices from various cartoons, when you're writing Megatron and you're laying out the cadences of his speech, do you, do you hear Frank Welker or, uh, uh, or David Kay, or is it just entirely your, your monologue, which, which you're thinking of at the time? That's a good question. I, 
Actually, I, I do think of it in terms of the character voices. So like Soundwave, when I'm working on him, you saw the, the Soundwave the balloon I designed for the uh, the new Transformers. I mean, yeah, that in my head, that's what, you know, that the visual representation of what Soundwave would sound like, you know? You know, the warble and everything, you know, the non-human tone, so yeah. So, so you mentioned music before that you were in a, a band in high school. It's, it feels like you think very musically. This all feels like improv, it feels sonic. Oh yeah, I, uh, it was. It's a, yeah, because it's it's a rhythm, and it's. I've taken a lot of uh, you know traditional drawing classes and stuff because you know, I'm a fan of art, and that's how I got into comics. Just being a fan of art, just the medium. I'm. I don't consider myself an artist. I'm more a technician, but because I appreciate it so much, I'm always looking for what they call the visual rhythms of storytelling, so that you know the reader has you know the whole the whole page, the holistic approach. It all matters. Every step, you know, the drawing, the layout, the coloring, the, the balloon placement, the sound effects, the tone, it's all there. And if you can put it all together, that's how you get, you know, the full impact. If any, any one of those pieces are, are left to chance or just, you know, half-assed, it, it's going to, you know, have a negative effect on the overall experience. So I'm always trying to, you know, up my game a little bit every time. Uh, and we can tell that right now because while you're saying that delivering your mission statement we have stuart's cat screaming <laughs> that, that, that's not my cat so i think i might have actually been a child <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh, no no but my cat is in the room at the moment she's blameless so uh, one of you has something going on it's it's funny when it's a cat but it's sad when it's a kid <laughs> <laughs> it's a I'm sure every, all animals and people are absolutely fine, though. What has been hard by this podcast? <laughs> well, you know, life is long. One thing, I've been, I've been dying to ask you this for years, mm -hmm. and I think I know enough now uh, for the answer. The faction symbols, the Autobot and Decepticon symbols. Uh-huh. I guess that's you? Uh, well, they came from Hasbro in, a, in their... Um style guide so we have those things so when you say you're talking about their placement on the, oh, the on yeah the, the specific placement it's 50 50 most of the time the artist will try and do it but if they forget then we have to pull it and place it for them like a lot of times optimus primes will be missing on his shoulders and so we'll put those in there and i'll, have, I'll try my best to make instead of just slapping down a, a vector file that we get from Hasbro, i'll try and render it out so that it looks like you know it's got a beveled edge and cast shadow and all that. So yeah, we do add those as okay. needed. Uh, yeah, I imagine, is that the kind of thing that Hasbro are particularly trigger happy about? Very much so, that's uh, that's their go-to. You know, uh, we were talking about how the characters have to match you know, Hasbro's style guides with reference to the toys. And having those badges on there correctly in the proper placement, that's a big one, yeah. Okay, and then, oh, so when there's kind of plot, um, things when someone's got a damaged badge or a wonky badge or a blacked out badge, I, mm -hmm. is, does that have to be a conversation? Um, not usually. Usually they'll let those ones go. They're they're mostly concerned about its appearance on covers, but also in interiors occasionally. And uh, the, there's a there's a saying for inkers in comics is like when in doubt, black it out. So that's a lot of times they'll just put that <laughs> part of the body in shadow, and you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> With Hasbro and other impressive parties' uh, approval, does that vary from type of book to type of book? I mean, uh, if you're doing one on a current cartoon, do you get more notes? Uh, do the movie books uh, get more pushback? I, I assume they, movie books have a likeness 
to the actors thing as well, like the Doctor Who wonders. A, a little bit, but not generally. It's a lot of times, you know, these things aren't even or just a. They'll give a cursory glance, and it de it just depends on who's doing the reviewing for the licensor. If they're going to be nitpicky about things, or they're just going to let it go because hey, they're going to get their check no matter what. You know, it just it just depends. But in general, it's it's not too bad. It's it's pretty consistent through all. Even all licensors are pretty consistent. Like I said, like you you mentioned actors and their likenesses. Every now and then, an agent might be the one approving it, and they'll be nitpicky because they want to earn their paycheck. But for the most part, it's not too bad. It's just you know a pretty standard thing. You're going to get at least a few comments. It's almost like they pick things just to validate their jobs. Like okay, right. I reviewed that and I found two mistakes, so fix these and we're good. And then you're you're off and running. And looking busy. <laughs> exactly. The world is full of middlemen. <laughs> you you you're out of the you're out of the industry now. Uh, for the most part, I still freelance and, and do lettering every now and then for various people. It's, I'm just not actively pursuing it because let's face it, the industry's been in a downward spiral for a long time, and this COVID stay-at-home thing and has has really wrecked it. I mean, you saw last year all the mass layoffs and the reorganizations and even though comics are still being published and they're put out there, it's 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 harder to get work and people are looking to pay less and less for it. I mean, what I get what I get paid now freelance wise is not what I was getting paid freelance for just you know ten years ago. Really? So it's, yeah, it's almost. And I'm old, getting old now too. I get cranky. I don't want to put up with as much crap. <laughs> I just physically can't do what I used to do, which is to stay up, you know, 22 hours a day working at home, just cranking out comics. I'd rather, you know, get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Who has it said that comics is an industry that takes its brightest and its best and just destroys them? Just uh, works them into the ground. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty rough, you know? Yeah, I, I often say, you know, the, the business of comics destroyed the, the craft of comics because, yeah, they're, I get it, you know, they, the purpose of business is to, to get a lower your cost and increase your profit. Well, you, in a creative industry, that doesn't quite fly because you need a better quality product to increase sales. And if what you're doing is grinding all the creatives down to working for their absolute cheapest, lowest cost, you're not creating a quality product that's going to sell well. Am I right in thinking sales are up in comics this year, even though everyone's been fired? Uh, I read some stories that yeah, graphic novel sales are up, but you know it's it's the it's the the catch twenty two of yeah, the graphic novel sales are up, but your your monthlies are down. And the yeah. graph, where do the, the graphic novels come from? They come from the monthlies. Like, that, you know, I'm not an expert on on the on the publishing side, business side of it, but I know that. You know, the, the, the scam, not scam, <laughs> the strategy was always <laughs> your, your monthlies pay for the cost of production of uh, our break even, and then your profit comes from the graphic novels after the fact. I mean, Which that's just sold in perpetuity. There's several strategies, but yeah, it's like they don't, the, the, yeah, the monthlies were always break even, but if you're not producing monthlies that sell, then, all, then where's your profit going? Then you're in a negative on your income and then you got to hope that the graphic nails graphic novels will at least pay for themselves it's so yeah that's why a lot of i i'm not the only one with the you know experience in in this industry who's just walking away from it i mean i know a lot of writers have gone on to go after tv and animation gigs they've just given up on comics altogether there's a thing where, where comics are now able to see bumping their own for companies as more testing ground for film Add TV ideas. I uh, 
I can't really speak for what IDW's business strategy is. If there is one, I don't know <laughs> what, what they're doing. But you're right that a lot of larger corporations, a lot of businessmen and women have come in and, and you decided that, you know, comic, but because they saw the success maybe of Marvel Universe and the Batman movies, they're like, all right, comics is IP farms. They're treating it as, you know, creating their own content that they're going to later sell for some other packaging. So the comics themselves are, are considered nothing. They're just, that's why the craft is going down. It's, it's just a stepping stone to something where they expect to make more money later at an, in another genre, another format, another media. And it's killing the craft basically, because all these, you know, the, it's funny. I like point out, it's like, wow, my, the value of my work has decreased over 20 plus years. But somehow the executives, the management team, their salaries keep going up. So where's the, even though our sales are down. So how does that work? Because I was like, why are you paying more for the people whose sales strategies have been so bad? I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're, hey, we're selling a lot of diamond rings this year. So things are good. But then all the people we send down to dig out the stones are dead <laughs> wow <laughs> that a sad place <laughs> but to, to be something a bit more cheerful i know what all our listeners are really waiting to hear about tom that's uh, comic book nobody oh <laughs> oh you mean my little satirical um, stress reliever <laughs> uh, yeah so, obviously podcast maximus did make it as one of those uh, i imagine i've bumped up readership considerably but uh, so with all those real conversations uh, we've carefully name changed people that you had, or was it flights of fancy? Oh no! Almost everything in there is based on factual experiences. That's that's if <laughs> I kind of did that as my my little swan song to comics. It's basically my autobiography of <laughs> this is this is what I spent twenty five years of my life doing, and I guess I could you know share this with the world now because what what are they going to do? Fire me? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I, I was already on the way out so what the heck so yeah no those are all real and i feel bad because i kind of had it i dropped i let it drop off because I, I just got too busy with you know new career and, and other things going on and then COVID. you'd think i had more free time but somehow i ended up not and so i kind of let it i i actually have the ending written that so i figured i figured i'd do my second volume put it out there on comiXology and just have it be the end end but i just haven't had time to do that yet either everything on there I can I can almost tell you exactly how the real conversation went down, <laughs> including the one about being say, someone telling me they could see my nipples at work. <laughs> that really happened. <laughs> You've got this vector file from the company to drop in front of those. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it feels like you were on the front lines of of a a moment that will never be will never see the like of it again in culture. That twenty years. Of mm -hmm. comics being sort of an underground thing, occasionally you get a Batman or you get something, but you know the English-speaking world just is comics now, and it's comics that were made in the two thousands. Like you, you were there. You were in the. You were in. You were in the office when all those things were happening. Yeah, it's 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 been an interesting ride. I've enjoyed it, but it's also been it's a little bit you know melancholy because you can see how it's it's kind of like dwindled. It, it's it's almost like. You, the, the uber controversies of how you know this uber business the the corporate makes this is a billion dollar company but they're just their drivers who have assumed all the risk mm. are getting paid less and less every every with every drive basically 
it, it all hinges on them destroying public transport, really. Yeah, exactly. So comics are the same way. It's like they shifted all the risks to freelancers. All the staff are at-will employees, so they can be cut at any time. And they're finding ways to, you know, get cheaper and cheaper labor without actually producing a better quality product. It's kind of sad, but that's, you know, like anything, I think there's an... It's, it's like craft beer, though. I think you're going to see the rise of, of creators who are passionate about what they do, and they're going to start... because. You don't need a publisher anymore with, with the way media is put out there. I mean, you could create your own comic at home, just like I did. Put it out there. Put it, put it up on, on its own marketplace and sell it without ever having to share any of those profits with the publisher. They don't have to get a taste. You can be your own. Your own so you can self-publish now better than ever. So I think it's going to be opportunities for more. But the thing is, people like going to what's familiar what's comfortable so if you want to make a transformers comic you're going to have to go with whoever has the license mm. you're going to have to get a job from them and they're you're going to they're going to pay what they're going to be willing to pay and that's it so it's it's it depends it's like how creative and how easily you can reach a new market it's always that kind of thing you know you can you can self-publish you can make indie stuff and you won't really ever make much money from it but then Nobody is. <laughs> These are all just a way of mo yeah. of like pushing yeah. ad space and IP up 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 the way. So you're yeah. kind of getting the full you're getting the full experience really if you're at, <laughs> if you're going to conventions just waiting on someone to come and pick something up. Exactly. So where is so that that is a note of hope. Um, <laughs> <laughs> will we see? It started on a downer note. <laughs> I feel everything should really, in some some level, be, be end on a down note. But will we see more from you creatively? Oh, I don't know. I'm still doing my, um, I'm still doing uh, freelance. So you'll see my name pop up every now and then on a few gigs. I mean, there's there's some I I've got right now. But personally, I've I've got some things I've been meaning to do and just haven't gotten around to. Like right now, I'm really into doing backyard farming just for fun. <laughs> yeah. What are you growing? A little bit of everything, you know. It's got doing a, I'm, I have chickens out back and then I'm putting in a full, you know, vegetable garden with, with all the basics, kale, beets, garlic, um, onions, you, you name it, just everything, carrots, tomatoes, you know, green It was about three years ago was the uh -huh. first time I had like a fresh egg. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I understood eggs. <laughs> so you had a fresh one? Yeah. Um, are your chickens productive? Oh, very much so, yeah. And then I, I'm trying to... Uh, I'm trying for the whole holistic approach where they're actually my, my weeders and my tillers. And, and, um, I just, I have them in tractors. I move them around the backyard to, you know, get my beds clean. It's, it's a whole hobby. So that's kind of why I've kind of been off comics. Just, just <laughs> I spent so much time sitting in a room by myself, staring at a computer screen that being out back is such a stress relief. It's, it's a kind of joyous thing. So I just, I need a break. Yeah. That sounds good. But there was a supermarket man, I, I should say, people should buy none fresh eggs. My livelihood depends on it, people. If you do want me, go buy a Tesco egg this week. And, else surely I will die. And, and I'll, say, I'll say as a biologist that eggs are living. They're alive when you eat them. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I like. I, I... When, when one goes off, they are dead now. That's when they're dying and decaying. But an egg can live for months oh, there you go. We're, we're, we're laughing and learning <laughs> <laughs> See, i came on here i learned something <laughs>
big old single-celled organism that could, if 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 it received the right instruction, become a chicken. Fantastic. Well, obviously you are going to have many eggs to look forward to, Tom. But when you, when you look back over uh, your time with Transformers, if there was one issue or moment you could you feel like was your highlight or your, your favourite bit of work, what what would you say that is? Oh man, that's. I think I what I enjoyed most is that I was able to start and finish um, Lost Light all the way through. Same with same with Optimus Prime. Yeah, I, I don't think I got. There were a couple issues I didn't get to letter because of time crunches. But seeing it, being able to fit, start a project from issue one and then seeing it all the way to the end is is pretty cool. You know, being able to finish something instead of just leaving. It. Like there's like I'm kind of bummed I didn't get to finish. You know, the Transformers Galaxies story. You know, the the Constructicon story that would have been fun to see through the end. But so that's what I enjoy most is that I got to start it and finish it. If it, if anything. I mean, no one else can say that. You are the only one from from issue from the first issue who's still there in the last issue. Well, I think that just about covers everything, doesn't it, Tom? Was there any uh, blast-burning farming-related question you'd like to ask? Well, I have a lot of farming-related questions, and I want to talk about guano a bit, but I think <laughs> I'll let Tom <laughs> off the hook. <laughs> uh, would you, uh, if people want to ask you more questions after this, how could they reach out to you? Oh, they can find me on Twitter and any me up. It's uh, at uh, Tomb Graphics, spelled T-O-M-B-G-R-F-X. So I'm out there if you want any questions. I'm always happy to help. If you need any logos designed, I like throwing those out there just for fun. Yes, he has just done the, uh, the new logo for one of the new logos for my website. Uh, I'm just about to place all the stuff on my website very, very quickly. But, uh, Tom has done uh, the visitation logo, and very nice. It is as well. So hit him up for your logo needs. <laughs> Tom, it's been excellent having you. Thank you so much. Thanks for getting into the nitty gritty. Thanks for getting into some of the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, you've been, yeah, a real stalwart of the of the comic we love. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's been a real blast talking to you. Hey, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. It was nice to revisit some of these old things. It reminded me of things I'd completely forgotten about. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we're here for. We're like... Uh... Oh, I was going to make a British cultural reference there, but hopefully, I was going to say we're like the Peter Kay of Transformers, remembering the past, so other people don't have to do it. But I, ho I hope you don't have Peter Kay over in America anyway. That'd be awful if you did. We could close the loop and say we're the skull cruncher of Transformers podcast. I don't know. <laughs> thank you for listening, everybody, to our special 50th episode. And thanks to Tom for guest scene and other Tom for. Uh, Telling us about eggs. That's Goodbye, well. everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Thank you. That's it for the interview. Now, just a quick follow-up from Tom before we go. He says... I regret that while I planned to thank your listeners and fans of Transformers in general for their support and kind word over the years, I completely spaced out while doing so at the end. Working in isolation for so long makes one careless with the social graces I've learned. So I thought I'd pass that on to you, the mysterious presence witnessing these events. That was Podcast Maximus episode 50, a dissection of Lost Light 25 with its letterer Tom B. Long. It was a production of Red Button Audio. You can follow and commission Tom on Twitter at TomBGRFX, TomBGraphics. And while you're at it, you can follow Stuart on at InflatableDalek and me at Tyrone McNally. 
theme music is Resuscitation by Hazeltron on a Creative Commons BYNC 2.0 license and the intro music was generated by Computoza. You can follow the show on Twitter or on Facebook and find our other shows through at Audio. Farewell, crumble into dust, but the good kind. 